This is a recording of a sermon from Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit lightsandiego.com. Well, my name is Benji. Uh, Glad you guys are with us. Uh, We're going to be spending the next uh, 30, 40 minutes or so kind of diving into a uh, specific passage of scripture. So if you have a Bible, you're, we're going to be in Isaiah 55 today. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, you're welcome to use your smartphone or uh, tablet. There's tons of free apps out there. Uh, but we would encourage you guys to, to get a Bible if you don't have one. Uh, we have one for you. If you guys would like one, we'll just give one to you because we believe that this book matters. Uh, and so this is a brand new church, right? This is, uh, I think, our fifth Sunday. And we decided that as we began this church, that we would dive into uh, really understanding uh, the, the theme of light, since we're light church, and how that traces throughout scripture. And what's fascinating is that the, the theme of light is in the very first verses of scripture and the very last verses of scripture. We see at the very beginning that the first thing God creates, the first thing he speaks into existence is light. At the very end of scripture, we see that um, as he's promising and describing what heaven will be like, he says that there'll be no more sun because the lamb, referring to Jesus, will be their lamp. So this is, um, this is a thread that we see through all of scripture. And we also see this as uh, Jesus showing up right in the middle of the scriptures, right in the middle of the story, he refers to himself as the true light. And so even in a world that we are aware of darkness and we've seen darkness and felt darkness, uh, Jesus promises us that the light that he brings will never be overcome by that darkness. And so as Light Church, our prayer, desire, hope is that we would find ourselves in the middle of a story that God's telling that's bigger than us. The story that's bigger than our, uh, our 70, 80, 90 years here. It's bigger than this church. It's, it's actually a story that's being, have been told for millennia and will be told for eternity. And it's this narrative of light and that we play a crucial role in that. We've been talking about these different elements of this narrative, of every narrative, that make up story. So we've talked about characters, we've talked about the setting, we've talked about conflict and foreshadowing. And today was supposed to be the climax, but as you know, this is a really important day for television because it's the season finale for This Is Us. So... um, So we decided, rather than competing with that and another football game, uh, that we would invite the neighborhood to join us to watch that game together and share some food and to move our service to 2 o'clock. But I also felt, you know what, maybe this isn't the best week to talk about really the climax of the story. And so I began to start thinking, well, what do we talk about? What's another element of story? And I was researching story and film and what this looks like. And one of the things I came across again and again is the idea of plot twist. This idea that there's a story that's moving along, it's kind of generating a theme and and, and kind of a direction, and somewhere in the middle of it, it shifts. And and that, for me, kind of, I feel like the Lord is speaking to me, he's like, this is exactly what happens right before the climax of the story, is that there tends to be this big plot uh, twist that happens. Now, we wouldn't necessarily come across it, but it's really evident if you are an ancient Near, East, Near Eastern Israelite that things that you thought were heading one way drastically turn the other way. And just to, to illustrate what, what kind of plot twist looks like, 
when I was young, I played soccer. I still love soccer. I've coached my daughter's uh, soccer team, and uh, we never won a game, but it's the kid's fault, not the coach. Um, but I loved soccer uh, growing up, and, and so I loved being the guy up front, trying to get to score the goals, and, uh, and I got pretty decent at it, so they invited me to be on the all-star team. And so I'm on this all-star team and stuff like that, and we show up. But the problem with all-star teams is everyone's an all-star. And so it's, it's kind of like everyone thinks they're LeBron James in the soccer version, right? Like everyone's messy. Everyone's like, well, I, I need to be the forward. I need to be the striker. I'm going to be the one scoring the goals. And so that was me. I'm like, I, clearly you're going to put me up front to score all the goals. And they put me in defense, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm playing way back, and I'm just so frustrated, and the game's going on and on, it's zero, zero. And the whole time, what am I thinking as like a, like a 10 or 11-year-old boy? I'm like, if, if I was up front, you know how many goals we would have, right? I mean, I hadn't, God hadn't worked on humility in my heart yet. But I was like convinced, I'm like, what? just put me up there. This is easy. These guys aren't that good. And so I'm in defense, and the ball comes to me, and I just have this moment of clarity. It's like Rudy, right? Like I'm just like, this is my moment. No one's going to win this game, so I need to take it into my own hands. And I proceed to take the ball the entire length of the field, and I score a goal. And, and, and I am just elated. I'm like, you're so welcome. And all of a sudden, I, and I look, and everyone looks really angry. True story. And I realize I had scored the goal in my own uh, goal. And true story. And I don't know what happened to me. I think I just literally got blacked out by pride, and I started running the wrong direction and literally scored on my own goalie. And granted, this is a new team. I didn't really know these people, but I was so sucked into this moment thinking, like, I, I got to win this game for everyone. And so you can imagine that, like, that shift that happens of thinking I've just, I'm the hero to everyone wants to kill me right now. And I just and I literally lost the game because of me. I was the only goal that was scored the entire game, and and I was thinking about that because I have nightmares about it still. But I was thinking there was this there was this direction I was I thought I was headed, and I thought it was a direction of victory and accomplishment. And all of a sudden, not only is that not true, but I have caused ruin for me and my whole team. And I can't uh, help but think that maybe this is what Israel felt like uh, as we come to the end of the Old Testament. That this nation, this, this baby kind of uh, small nation, is kind of the least kind of rose to power and rose to greatness. We talked about this last week. And if you haven't heard it, you can go back and listen to the podcast. But it kind of rose into this really big place of prominence. But as they stepped away from the terms of God's covenant, they began to experience division and war and the nation fell apart. It literally split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And it just goes from bad to worse. And so now there is a large, as a country of people that are being taken into slavery because of their rebellion. And so the northern kingdom, Israel, is taken first by this nation of Assyria. And historians uh, are convinced that the Assyrians were probably the most violent, uh, brutal culture in all of history. Not the people you want to take over your land. And so what I would like to do is I would like to spend the next couple of minutes 
and I want to just go over some history, okay? Uh, and the reason for this is, is not for you to fall asleep or to feel uh, bored. The idea behind this is if we can understand the history in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's what the theologians call the 400 years of silence, where God stopped speaking. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. It's the last time we hear from God in the scriptures, and it's 400 years before he speaks again through John the Baptist when Jesus shows up. But there's a lot that happens in these 400 years. And so I want to just do, and not spend a long time on this, but there's going to be a couple slides on here. You can take pictures of them. You can review them uh, for yourselves. But I want to go through what's happening to Israel during this time because it's a pretty big plot twist. This nation that was kind of have everything for them, everything promised to them, is now finding themselves again and again under the oppressive rules of other nations. And the the rescue they were hoping was going to come is going to come very differently than they thought. Uh, so as Malachi ends, the, or the last book of the Old Testament ends, what's happening right now is Israel and Judah, these two nations, have been captured by Assyria, then by, by Babylon, and they have just returned from the Babylonian captivity, and they're going back to the promised land. But, it, but keep in mind, everything is ruined everything. And so they've started to rebuild the wall, they've started to rebuild the temple, but nothing's the same. And as they go back to their hometown, everything that they thought they knew and everything that used to be normal and good and thriving is now having to be rebuilt. And they do their best, right? They restore the the priesthood, they start restoring the temple, they restore sacrifices, uh, and they get rid of kind of the, the, the idol worship that was going on. Uh, but in this, there's still things that Malachi is kind of warning them about. He's warning them, like, you're not treating your wives well. You're still taking pagan, you're marrying pagan nations, and you're not tithing. And he's really hitting on heart issues. Like, yes, you're getting the, the, the structure back, but your heart's not there. You're not getting it. And so in 333 B.C., Israel uh, falls to the Greek Empire. So when Alexander the Great kind of rises to power, and so they fall under that empire. And in 323, only 10 years later, Egypt captures them back under their oppressive rule. But they still kind of maintain kind of their Greek culture and manners. And while they're in Egypt, they actually is the first time where they translate the Old Testament, the ten, their scriptures, the Tanakh, into Greek. And this is what we call the Septuagint. This is what oftentimes referred to in the Old Testament. So they have, it's the first time we really see these scrolls come into one collected piece of writing. So God's still working. But no one's free yet. And so as Egypt comes in, takes them over, uh, it's not long until around 204 B.C. that Antiochus, the great of Syria, captures them back, takes over control. And this is where things kind of go really bad. And so uh, Epiphanes uh, is one of the rulers that comes in 171. And again, I know this is a lot of information coming at you, but this is all going to tie in together. As Syria is kind of taking them back over, one of their rulers comes in, and the only thing they kind of have left is the temple. And what he does is he goes into the Holy of Holies. Now, the Holy of Holies was only allowed to be entered into by the high priest one time a year after a week of ceremonial cleansing. So the the dictator and the ruler just says, I'm God, so I'm going to go wherever. And so this kind of ragtag, vagabond nation that has been under nation, under rule, under rule, under rule, now watches their one sacred thing they have left, the glue that's holding them together, just get desecrated. And what's interesting is that this was actually prophesied what happened in, the, in Daniel. 
Daniel prophesied that there would be this desecration of the, of the holiness of God. And so, and, and it happens right before their eyes. So again, although there might not be scripture being written, scripture is being fulfilled during this 400 years of silence. Well, they're not happy. And so what they do is they decided like, you know what, we're going to take this into our own hands. And so there begins to be this group of zealots. And zealots were kind of like Jewish ninjas. And, uh, and this is what happens, something called the Maccabean Revolt where a bunch of people go in and by force take back the temple. And just, I mean, it would be a great movie, honestly. It would be super action-packed, thrilling movie. And they kind of restore some level of holiness. By the way, this is when Hanukkah comes into play. Uh, it's during that same kind of revolt as they kind of keep the, the light lit in the temple and things like that. But it's, again, it's short-lived because in 63 BC, the Romans gained control back over Israel. So now it is the age of Rome, uh, which there's never been an empire like Rome in all of the world. And it's beginning to, and it literally swallows up almost the entire ancient world. And Israel is a part of that. But what's interesting about Rome is rather than occupying every single territory, because they only had so many people, is they began to say, we'll let you be your people but you're just under our rule. You have to pay our taxes. You have to do kind of our customs, but you can still kind of be the Israelites. But they're still under the boot of Rome. Um, and during this time, there's two things that developed. One is the Sadducees, which is a group of people that were kind of like the, kind of the political uh, Jewish rule of the day underneath the Roman rule, really liberal, not really religious, but had some control over the, these, the, the temple but the other group of people that were being built was this group called the Pharisees. This is really important because we're going to be talking about them next week. We're going to be talking about them in the weeks to come. And the Pharisees really were birthed out of the Maccabean Revolt. It's this idea of the reason we keep being oppressed is we keep not following the laws that God gave us. So we're going to create this little crew that's going to kind of become the religious police of the day. Birth out of a really healthy desire, right? We're tired of being kicked around because we rebel against God. So we're going to make sure that we do everything right, everything according to the law. And so the, this is where Pharisees kind of are birthed out of during this time and they come into play and synagogues start popping up everywhere. And so we just covered 400 years of history in about two minutes. But the reason I wanted to kind of give you that understanding is at the end of the Old Testament, uh, there's no resolve. There's no happy ending. It's actually quite tragic, and it continues to be tragic. But in this strange space of trying to figure out where do we fit, where's God in all of this, why isn't he speaking, they begin to start looking at the prophecies that were given to them 100, 200, 300 years ago, and they begin to start realizing that God had been speaking all along about what's about to happen. But what's fascinating about this and where the plot twist comes into play is what God prophesies is going to happen, the kind of the restoration of all things that they're about to see is very different than anything they would ever want. And it's very true of us, isn't it? Like we want God to answer our prayers, but really we want God to answer our prayers our way, right? We don't want him just to answer it. We want him to answer it in the way that we wanted it to be answered. And this is really what's developing at a national level for, the, for Israel, 
Is there like, God, we, we've gone from this nation to this nation to this rule to this oppressive ruler, and we are looking at your prophecies, and, but when we're ready for you to come and just, and just to obliterate Rome, to obliterate these people who've kept us under control. But if you look back at the prophecies, they say things that are very intriguing, and that's where we're going to spend our time today, is this plot twist, is God does promise rescue, He does promise that he's going to show up, but it's in a way that is drastically different than the story they thought they were going to hear, right? It's like me trying to score a goal. I'm going this way. I'm going to score a goal. This is how God's going to show up, and it's actually quite opposite than anything that they would have ever imagined. This is Isaiah 55. We read the first five uh, verses together. And by the way, there's dozens of these prophecies. This is just one chapter we're going to be looking at today. But these are some of the things that they would have had to wrestle with, things they would have had to hear. This is God saying, I see what you're going through. I hear what you're going through. This is at the very beginning of their captivity when the northern nation has been taken by Assyria. And this is what's written. It says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. We should like make that a sign outside for the free tacos, right? (laughs) Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Remember that idea of covenant from last week? By faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler of the commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon the nations you know not. And nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. For he has endowed you with splendor. Now this is, this is fascinating on a couple different things. One is there is this theme of Come. It's this Greek word halak, which he uses again and again and again. And whenever Jewish people want to get your attention in writing, they don't have exclamation marks, they don't have emojis. They would repeat their words again and again. So when they says that God is holy, 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 it's not, they're not stuttering, they're really just saying he's he's holy. So when the author is writing, come, come, halak, halak, come. Come. He's trying to get this concept across loud and clear. Just come. But this invitation to come is is to come and get water, to to drench your soul, but it doesn't cost anything, right? To come get bread that's not, you don't have to buy. It's come to get this gift that won't cost you anything. And then come get milk and, 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 and wine. These are kind of luxurious things. Like there is abundance and goodness. Just come to God and come do these things. But this is what's crazy about what's happening. The invitation to come is not to Israel, it's to all the nations, but Israel's the audience. So they're, they're hearing this prophecy from Isaiah. They're reading the, the scrolls. And what they're saying is there's this incredible uh, invitation, intimate invitation to come. And I'm going to give you water and bread and wine and milk. You don't have to pay for it. It's freely given. But it doesn't say to Israel. It says this is for everybody. This is for all nations. Now keep in mind, this is right in the middle 
When Assyria has come and has captured the northern kingdom, that means the audience who's reading this and is hearing this for the first time literally has family members who have been captured, taken by this brutal, violent nation, and have been beaten into submission, maybe raped, maybe gotten, uh, gotten near, uh, pierced through their nose, connected to the next person, and then marched across the desert. So if someone passes out, guess what happens? I mean, guys, this is, this is Assyria. This is Assyria. And so this is right in the middle where they're not best buddies with the nations around them. This isn't like, this isn't the Olympics that are happening this week, right? Where the whole world comes together. No, no, no. This is during the, the worst, darkest time in Israel history where they feel like the entire world is against them. And here comes this prophecy. Come, come, come get this food and wine and milk and bread. And it's for everybody. Can you imagine how shocking this would have been for Israel to hear? What? Talk about plot twist. Wait, wait, wait. I thought God was going to come and give us water and bread. And he's going to give us the land back. But what God starts prophesying is this This beautiful, healing, redemptive, fulfilling, satisfying picture is for the world. It's for the world. Now, they shouldn't have been shocked by this totally because, remember, the nation of Israel is birthed through one man named Abraham. And the promise was this, I will bless you to be a blessing. Although Israel would have read this as a plot twist, God did not. God's intention always, always, always was for the world. And Israel was his agent, his vehicle to reach the world. And again, we've we've known that now that they've kind of failed at that. But God hasn't changed his mind. But for Israel, what they're thinking is they're wanting another exodus from Egypt. They wanted wanted them to show and and shut down Pharaoh or shut down these rulers or or Alexander the Great or Pompey or some of these, or Caesar, some of these dictators that have come. They're waiting for that again. But God says, no, 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 you don't understand. My heart has been, will be for the entire world to come. And to come and get the free, abundant gift that I have to give. And the other kind of shocking thing that we see is that this starts talking about this holy one that's to come, which is reference to what the Jews called the Messiah, the promised one. There is going to be a deliverer. But if you, and we don't have time to do this, but if you go back two chapters to Isaiah 53, it describes who the Holy One is. It describes who the Deliverer is. And my friends, it would have shocked Israel because it doesn't describe a triumphant, strong, military leader. It describes a suffering servant. And here's this nation, and, they, I, and I can't, we read this, and some of these verses are familiar to us. We're about to read one that's very familiar. But for them, this would have been really hard to hear. So we are going to have a savior, but he's going to be a suffering servant. We are going to have things restored to us, but not just us, the entire world is going to get restored. And this is kind of the first plot twist that we're introduced to is the who. The who gets this redemption and who does it come through? Number two, the kind of the second plot twist that we see is the what? What is being offered? What is the, the bread and the water and the wine? What, what is it referring to? We find this out in the next few verses. So starting in verse 6, the prophet Isaiah says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. 
Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You guys ever heard that verse before? His ways are higher than our ways. You guys familiar with that? I mean, you don't have to be a Christian to hear that. It's just kind of, it's kind of this token little thing that people just kind of throw around when they don't understand things, right? Why'd that happen? I don't know. His ways are higher than our ways. And it's true. I mean, like this fits everywhere. Anytime where there's something hard or we don't understand, this verse just seems to kind of like be brought up, right? Higher than the heavens are from the earth. Well, let's just talk about that for a second. I got this from Mark Batterson, who's a, a pastor in Washington, D.C. He, he tried to take a stab on us to understand how high, are, how, how much is God's understanding different than ours? How his way is different than ours? And these are some of the things he said. In the time you snap your finger, light travels around the earth eight times. Okay, get that? So right now, light has traveled around the world eight times. That's how fast light travels. If you drove to the sun at 65 miles an hour, 24 hours a day, it would take you 138 years to drive to the sun. The sun that hits our face is only eight minutes old. The furthest star we know of, so this, that, again, that's kind of an idea of how, how fast light travels. The furthest star we know of is over 15 billion light years away. It's really far. <laughs> and he says this, your best thought on your best day is over 15 billion light years less than God's thoughts. So when it says that God's ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, we can't even fathom the gap of, of what, that, what that looks like. But I, I want to let you guys in on a little secret. When this was written in Isaiah, he was not writing, although it may be true, it is true, but this specific passage is not writing about God's thoughts and ways in a, general, in a general term. He's talking about a specific way God has, a specific thought that God has that is drastically different than ours. Because if we're made in God's image, there are sometimes we do share the same thoughts that God has. Like, yes, we want good for humanity. We want to continue to see life flourish around us. There are times we share thoughts. Says, but there is, there is a thought God has. There is a way that God has that is so distant from our understanding that we can't even fathom it. So if you skip back a few verses, this is what he's talking about. Let's read verse six again. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he, listen to this, this is, this is the thought. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. Another translation says, he will abundantly pardon. And I love this because what he's describing right there, right? This gift he opened up with that's for the world, coming through his holy, holy one, coming through the Messiah, is that whoever comes to God, he will abundantly pardon. It's, it's a description of mercy, 
Whoever would come, no matter how awful and evil and rebellious they are, if they come, God will have mercy on them and he will abundantly pardon them because his thoughts are not our thoughts, neither are his ways our ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. That verse is talking about God's mercy. How wild is that? If there's one thought that God has that we can never even get, it's how merciful God is. Now, let me challenge you. If you've ever been, if you've ever sat in the seat like, man, if I was God, I wouldn't let that happen. So have you ever thought that? I have. If I can just be honest, there have been moments in my life when I have been faced with loss and trauma and tragedy. And there are moments where I said, God, if I, if I was all powerful, that would not have happened. And what I'm saying in that moment, and, and, and he has, and again, he has mercy for me, but in that moment, I just really, I doubt God's mercy. I doubt it. I'm like, Lord, I just don't get it. But when I read this verse, it challenges me to my core because what it's saying is you could never, ever imagine how merciful God is. Your very best attempt to be merciful falls so short of God's mercy that he gives again and again and again. You can't even compare. That, for my own soul, gives me peace. Because those days where I just feel like maybe that was the last time that God was going to let me sin and that's it. I'm reminded that, no, 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 God's mercy is so much higher than I could ever imagine. Um, Jen, my wife, is one of the most compassionate people I've ever met. And there are times when I look at her, I'm like, I, just, I don't get it. Like, that compassion. And this isn't just for people. This is for, like, dogs, too. Any, like, dog lovers in the house? You know, we're in Encinitas. It's safe. Um, but I, I remember, like, whenever... And it kind of clicked for me that there was this time, there's a dog that my sister-in-law, Jasmine, I think she's here somewhere, she, they found this dog and like, that someone had left, and this dog was just like kind of mangy and didn't really like people, and it was just kind of like a, a piece of work. And, and Jen's like, we need this dog. And I'm like, no, we, no, we don't. <laughs> we have children, and we, like, they are enough to handle. And, and she proceeds over the next days and weeks unrelentingly just we need who's going to take care of this dog I'm like the uh, humane society I don't know but she just won't give up and she's like we need this dog and I'm like and so finally I give in and she takes it in and this is the like the smelliest dog you guys I mean I, I know there's some dogs are cute this one was not and she loved it right and we ended up finding a better home for it because it really did not like people and we had a lot of people in our house but um, dog's still doing great and everything. But I remember in that moment, I just realized, I'm like, I'm like I don't get it. And this actually gave me insight of why she actually started dating me. Because I'm like, oh, I'm the dog. <laughs> I get it. I'm the three-legged dog. Like, this is all kind of connects to me. But I, I got to tell you, as, as much as I can't fathom Jen's compassion sometimes, if I had to even for a second try and fathom God's mercy, I'll never get there. And I think that's one of the biggest parts of this plot twist. 
is Israel is, ra- is waiting for wrath. It's waiting for justice and judgment. And, and, and don't get me wrong, God is a God of justice. We see God's judgment, but we also see in Scripture says that his mercy triumphs over judgment. We see that this, in this moment in Israel's history, they're waiting for God's wrath to be poured out upon these nations. God says, my mercy and how I abundantly pardon every nation is beyond anything you guys could ever understand. It's radical. Uh, we, were, uh, we led worship a couple weeks ago up at Life Pacific College for one of the conferences, and one of the um, faculty got up and was talking about a new song that's been written. It's actually the number one downloaded Christian worship song right now. It's called Reckless Love. We've done it here. And he's just talking about his, and, and this isn't like a bash on him at all. I get what he's trying to say. But he's just talking about, like, I think they could have used a better word than reckless. I don't think we should call God's love reckless. And he goes on to kind of make his point, and this is why I think. And, and as he's saying this, and I get what he's trying to say, because his whole thing is like God's love is intentional. And, and yes, it's absolutely intentional. But when I read passages like this, I actually think reckless is a perfect word. Because his love and his mercy that he gives out, yes, is intentional, but it's so big, and he gives it over and over again to people who don't deserve it, that it actually feels quite reckless. He just continues to give it. Oh, you, you rebelled again? More mercy. You did that sin again? More mercy. Oh, wait, more love, more grace. You're, you're broken and fallen apart. Come on in. And we see this again and again throughout the Old and throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, we look, at, we look at Nineveh. Nineveh, when Jonah went to them, was the capital of Assyria. And his message was this, repent. It wasn't God's going to smite you. It's the first thing he says is, if you turn, God will have mercy on you. We see it again and again and again, this idea that we could never understand how enormous and profound God's mercy is that he promises everyone. No one is excluded from it. So we talked about the who, right? The plot twist and the who, like who gets, who gets to come and even the, the one who brings that. We talked about the what, this mercy that he brings. And the third plot twist we see in Isaiah 55 is the where. Where is this all going? And verse 10 says this, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you. And the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper. And instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be the Lord's renown. If you notice how this chapter ends, again, it talks about this invitation for the nations to come. And that those who turn will be met with abundant pardoning and mercy that we could never even fathom. And then he starts talking about really how this is all going to end. And I love some of the things he talks about. He talks about snow and rain. It's this imagery, this silent, 
kind of subtle imagery that takes time. Isn't it funny how snow and rain transform places? Now, we don't know because we're in San Diego. But, but snow and rain is this silent force that over time brings forth life. It says, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to bring this forth. And I love it. It says, this is going to happen because my word de- declared it, decreed it. Remember the creation of the world began because God spoke? And so we see this imagery again. It says, I'm speaking this out. And when God speaks, it happens. And that's important for us to know because maybe you feel like Israel right now. Maybe you feel like, man, life just feels like it's falling apart and it's out of control. And, it's, and maybe it's your own doing and maybe it's just because we live in a broken and fallen world and you have nothing to do with it. Life is just hard. These words bring so much comfort because what he's saying is it will not always be this way. And you can know that it's true because I've said it. And he begins to start talking about garden imagery. Isn't that funny? He's going back to the garden. And he starts talking about instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper. And instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. You know what's interesting about juniper and, and myrtle trees? They're evergreen trees. It says where there's thorns and briars, where there is death that has been brought up all around you that are choking out the things that are good and are painful and sharp. It says where those things once were will begin to be life that never goes out of season, never ends. And I think for, for the Israelites to hear these words, it, it adjusts this idea of what the story is really about. The story is about going back to the garden, not as a geographical location, but as a reality where the presence of God is as real as you standing next to me. And he starts to promise the nation of Israel this, but he's promising it that it's so much bigger than just them. And we see, and, 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 and hear me out, because this is really important for us to get before we talk about the climax of the story next week. The story from the very beginning has always been shalom. It's always been God created the world in its right order. And when we messed it up, the story didn't change. Now, we changed, the setting changed, but the end goal of the story never changed. Like, I still want that. I still want what's broken to be made right. I still want what's out of order to be put in order, what's sick to be made healthy. I want to get back to this place where everything that has been made wrong by sin is made right by my presence. And he's speaking this to a nation that is deeply in pain and is about to spend the next few hundred years under bondage. But he says, don't forget that the story that is being told is so much bigger than what we can see and feel right now. It's a story that is so great and massive and it's always speaking to the future that God is going to restore. But what's amazing, because of what Jesus brings, we'll talk about this next week, is that we don't have to wait for heaven. That God's intent and heart is that it starts happening right now. 
right now in the relationships that we have, in the work environments we share, in the things we put our hands to, in our dreams and in our visions and for our lives. It's this idea that God desperately wants to enter into it and begin to start making it whole. That every one of us who feels guilty and crushed by the weight of our sins, that even today would find mercy. And be reminded that there's nothing that we can do to upset this story that God is telling. Other than reject it. But when we submit to it and lean into the story that God's telling, we get to experience this life that he talks about at the end of Isaiah 55. Right here and right now. So let's, let's do this. Let's close our eyes. I'm going to go ahead and pray. Oh, Father, we are so thankful that you gave a promise to the whole world, Lord. And it's the reason why Light Church exists. Is that 2,700 years ago, you spoke through a man, Isaiah, that your heart is for all nations. Lord, thank you that 2,700 years ago you gave a promise that for those who come to you, you will abundantly pardon them and you will show them mercy in ways we could never even fathom. Lord, thank you that 2,700 years ago through the prophet Isaiah, you promised us that the world we currently inhabit will not always be a place of thorns, but a place of life. And Lord, I'm asking that every one of us would be reminded, Lord Jesus, that we are not underneath the power of, un, uh, of, we're not under the power of circumstances, we're not under the power of the lack of control that we find around us, Lord Jesus. We are part of your story. And even in the pain, we see that Jesus suffered. Even in the suffering, we recognize, Lord Jesus, that it will not end there. It will end in mercy and it will end with life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.